On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Peter Gabriel's New Blood. And welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we finish out the Peter Gabriel catalog with New Blood. Gentlemen, welcome back for what is, I believe, going to be our last official episode on the Peter Gabriel catalog with New Blood. Now, New Blood counts as a studio album, mainly because we agreed it counted, but it's not new material. It's reinterpretations of Peter Gabriel's previous catalog. So with regards to that, it's, you know, kind of in a tweener state, but I, I've been just fascinated with this record ever since I came across it. And I had no idea when this thing came out. I, I really didn't know anything about it. What I do remember, and I, you know, it's, it's funny with, with the way my memory is and the things I don't remember, the things that I do is always kind of fascinating to me. I was working in my bedroom one weekend afternoon and i turned on the tv and i don't it was one of the premium channels i don't know what it was but it was the live performance of this and all i can remember is seeing san jacinto and the rhythm of the heat performed with a full orchestra back to back and my brain just melted and i thought i don't know what this is but it's wonderful as it turns out, I didn't watch the rest of that performance movie, and we can talk about there's a there's a, a live sort of companion album that goes with this called Live Blood, and having listened to that, I'm kind of glad I didn't watch the whole thing, but that's a whole different story. Suffice it to say, I was intrigued enough that I went out to find this record. I've been kind of smitten with it ever since. I've threatened here on the palaver and with the recording of this episode, it may be time for me to finally force myself to sit down and do it. But I've threatened an episode on orchestrated interpretations of prog rock because there are, there are three albums that sort of define the spectrum for me. There is the classical yes or something like that that was done I believe after Union, but before Talk with Steve Howe and John Anderson's on that. And it's really just a, a straightforward lifting the parts and transitioning them into orchestral instruments. It, it's, there's, there's nothing exotic about the arrangement, the interpretation. It's just same music played with different instruments. Okay, cool. That's great. This sort of sits in the middle where Peter is, he keeps sort of the, the, the fundamental bones of the song, mm -hmm. but he 
he does sort of interpret them a little bit differently given given the uh the, the palette that he's using and peter has never really been shy about tweaking his songs after he recorded them anyway so that like i said that's kind of middle of the road and then the far end of the spectrum on the other side which is just a, a phenomenal thing is us and them symphonic music of pink floyd which is a complete redo of pink floyd songs you know such that it it sounds like they're supposed to be orchestral pieces and you can sort of recognize some of the the melodies and themes that sort of percolate through it's it's exceptionally well done and sometimes you don't necessarily recognize them immediately as i recall from yeah exactly yeah so so i've always threatened to to do an episode where i explore that and actually i need to because in my vinyl buying heyday pre-pandemic i did come across the the symphonic genesis album which lies somewhere more in the middle so i think you know there's there's enough to talk about there and and this is of course different from something like yes is time and a word or magnification where there are original songs that include orchestration i'm talking about when you have something that or was recorded quest. as i'm sorry or the quest or the quest now i'm talking about something where you have you know the original song was recorded in a more traditional rock fashion if you will and then it's orchestrated after the fact but but that's what we have here tonight and now, you know now, now joe just quick there may be some others these may not be considered prog but i was wondering about these same types of things now deep purple in 1969 did a concerto for group and orchestra oh apparently they recorded at royal albert hall with the royal philharmonic orchestra emerson lake and palmer did a con now this is different right because they do concerts right like mm -hmm. they did a concert elton john did a concert if you want to call the wall in berlin they had an orchestra there i guess i don't remember that from our episode eric clapton even metallica got involved rush did a tour with with a symphony even kiss in 2003 did a tour with an orchestra and of course meatloaf i don't know that we would consider all of that to be prog but i think we could potentially agree that most of that was unnecessary at the least <laughs> i would agree i'm i'm fascinated by the idea of what on earth kiss would do with an orchestra but right <laughs> and, but i i'd love to, i'd love for you to do that episode because you know of what there is also a beatles uh, orchestration and i want to say that that one sort of sits more along the lines of the us and them the symphonic music of pink floyd versus just some of the rehashing of you know regular songs but with an orchestra yeah and of course marillion's live with the orchestra or that's live correct with friends friends yep. i'm just gonna say from the, the top of this that i feel very similar about peter gabriel new blood as i do with a lot of these things that that we've described like interesting but mostly unnecessary i hate to say this at the top of the show i don't really find much in the way of any kind of imaginative reinterpretation of anything going on here maybe with the exception of what you mentioned at the outset rhythm of the heat san Jacinto, the intruder maybe 
And I don't know that I disagree with you. You know, as I was preparing for this episode and going through and making my notes, and even even just listening to it, you know, because again, I've I've been listening to it for some time. But when we gear up for an episode, I listen perhaps much more closely. And it, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are there are some of these interpretations which are wholly unremarkable. And but there are some that I do think are quite noteworthy. So, and none of it is is at least unpleasant. But I I think your point is is fairly valid. I, I certainly recognize it, and I've had some of some similar thoughts as well. But I did think it, like I said, for me personally, there's enough here to make it worth at least chatting about and considering. And I'll give credit to to Peter for doing this. It's an interesting thing to do, and I think on the whole, he does it well, dare I say, and this is going to sound snarky, and it's really not meant to, but maybe the fact that some of these interpretations are so unremarkable, is 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 that just a reflection of the limits to Peter's powers or the fact that maybe he he didn't find the right partner for this? I don't know. I have because not, thoughts on this, yeah. if you will. Um First of all, Joe, I like the the rebranding of your mem- memory because uh, in previous episodes it was a strainer or a colander and things were escaping from it. But you <laughs> you gave us the, the good side of Joe's memory where it brings you all these wonderful memories. So so continue in that in that in that path. This podcast will be a forum for your your rebranded memory. <laughs> and 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 for me personally, when we talk about the uh, Brock bands meeting the orchestras. I think of um, Nirvana with a cellist on MTV Unplugged. I don't know if you've seen those oh, yeah. iconic oh, yeah. performances, but it, that 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 touches something for me. And that, maybe that's a little easier to pull off, just throwing in one cello rather than the full orchestra. Well, I can imagine. I mean, given all the examples that we have, right? The examples I talked about, the examples Paul talked about, and, and Ken, you're right with with Nirvana. Other people have done, you know, more scaled back versions. You know, rock music in whatever form has always had this fascination and flirtation with, you know, orchestral music. Look at, uh, you know, Tony Banks and and his his series of original orchestral works. I mean, there's it, it keeps popping up throughout the history of of rock music so there's there's something there and and you know much like this sometimes it's really great and sometimes it's like eh, okay i'm perversely curious about this whole kiss thing you've completely fried my brain now because i just i don't <laughs> i don't get it aside from what <laughs> beth they used an orchestra on beth right <laughs> they did i, I think yes yeah. yeah but but that beyond that i'm like what what? <laughs> I mean, just imagine the possibilities there. Well, how can you orchestrate Detroit Rock City? Please, I, I'm. It's one of those things I don't want to know, but I'm. I want to know, and I'm going to at some point. I'm going to pull up a YouTube video, and I'm going to be pissed off that I wasted the time to do that. With all due respect to Mark Anthony K. I'm going to put a link right into the our chat here, Joe, because that's the video that's on this particular website. What Detroit Rock City? Yeah. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yeah, with the orchestra. Really? That 
that's a lovely song. It's incredible. It's the best kiss. It's the only kiss song I like. But the you know, only one you like. Well, in 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 keeping with tradition on this podcast, I'm going to blame Bob Ezrin. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to buy Bob Bob Ezrin dinner now? Is that- I don't think so. I okay. don't think so. We've given him a lot of props over the years. <laughs> I. That's funny, Ken. I was just listening to a couple of seconds. Uh, it, there's there's nothing imaginative going on in the orchestral interpretation of Detroit Rock City Live. Uh, don't you worry. Imagine an entire orchestra playing in unison. Dun dun. <laughs> oh, right. God. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine imagine the poor musicians who had to play that. They must be like, just shoot me now. Oh, I'm sure they were loving it every second of it. That's a good segue back to New Blood because we do have some very creative arrangements. Well, except the first track. I may pan the very first track and then I'm in love with the rest of the album. You're going to pan the rhythm of the heat? Really? That's okay. It's a risky move, Joe, but you got to trust me on this. I can't. I look forward to getting there. But before we get there, Ken, we have to go through some some basic structure for the podcast. How would you like to handle the uh, the timeline of progressive rock for this? Because there's a huge gap to to deal with here, is there not? I just focused on 2011 when it was released. I stumbled upon the fact that a uh, friend of the palaver, Simon Godfrey, played with Tiny Fish in 2011 for its first time yep. in America at Rosfest. Uh, so so I, I, I loved seeing Tiny Fish in the actual Wikipedia timeline of progressive rock, and I was not the one that put it there. We saw the usual parade of the new generation of Prague. I saw some Blackfield. I saw some Coheed and Cambria. I saw some uh, Haken. So it, it's it's just the, the 2010 decra- decade of... Prague early on, Neil Morse, uh, Symphony X, Queensryche did Dedicated to Chaos, and Yes did Fly From Here. So it's a very interesting year. It is an interesting year. So if we look at the particulars for the album, so New Blood was released on 10 October 2011. It was released on the label Real World slash Virgin and produced by Peter Gabriel and John Metcalf. Normally, we go into personnel, but the personnel for this listed in the wikis is, um, you know, more about engineering and production and arrangement. But I'll I'll hit some highlights here. So Peter Gabriel, obviously production and arrangement. John Metcalf, also production, arrangement, mixing and orchestration. So if we don't like the orchestration, we can we can yell at him. I will note Melanie Gabriel. Vocals on Downside Up, oh. Anna Brune, vocals on Don't Give Up. Tom Crawley is also listed um, with vocals. And the very generic New Blood Orchestra it is credited with orchestra performance. Now, that becomes important and part, the, the main reason actually why I absolutely despise the live album. But that's a whole different story. For the purposes of this podcast, I don't know what all you guys listened to. I have, you know, a the original release on this. So basically, 
you know, I'm considering the original release. So track listing is Rhythm of the Heat, Downside Up, San Jacinto, Intruder, Wallflower, In Your Eyes, Mercy Street, Red Rain, Darkness, Don't Give Up, Digging in the Dirt, The Nest That Sailed the Sky, A Quiet Moment, and Salisbury Hill. Indeed. And New Blood is the ninth studio album by the English rock musician Peter Gabriel, released on 10 October 2011. The album consists of orchestral re-recordings of various tracks from Gabriel's career, which is not really exciting, but that's what it is. I feel, since I made explicit mention of it, I need to explain my beef with the live album, just so that we can get it out of the way and people aren't, you know, sit, you know, yelling at me the whole evening. So the the live album generally acceptable enough there's nothing you know if if you like new blood you're going to like the live album if you don't like new blood you're not going to like the live album it's it's pretty straightforward it expands out in a certain number of songs and everything else but there's nothing there that's really earth-shattering what really fucking drives me crazy and it for whatever reason and i don't know why it was left in the released recording but gabriel for the second half of that of that live album is obsessed with giving credit to everyone all the fucking time he must have introduced the new blood orchestra five times on the second half of the album I, i get it pete shut up it just it's annoying so, but that has no impact on wow. what we're going to talk about tonight. I mean, it's, orchestras are big, you know, takes a long time. Get everybody. No, no. He doesn't introduce everyone. He just says, the New Blood Orchestra. Oh, I see what you mean. You know, oh, and thanks to the wonderful New Blood Orchestra. Hmm. Thank you to the New Blood Orchestra. I mean, it's just like, shut up. Well, you know, sometimes as a front man, you do have to stall. You know, many times I say things like this next song features Mike Feud on the acoustic guitar while he's tuning up. (laughs) Dude, I I totally get that. But (laughs) I'm pretty sure that someone has the ability to edit all that bullshit out. That's true. But maybe maybe like many of his listeners, Peter Gabriel was so bored with his new blood versions of the song that he just (laughs) couldn't handle it anymore. And so just let it go. But but like I said, that's that's a that's a just a complete old man grumpy aside. Speaking of grumpy old man, when we're recording this, I've been seeing you know Rick Wakeman is touring the Northeast right now, and uh, he's playing tonight. I'm very, very sad I'm not there. He's pl- he's touring the Northeast, as in the Northeast United States. Yes, yes. I had no idea. I was I was going to go because we had learned about this when I was there in June, but I had such a cluster trying to travel that i couldn't i couldn't risk getting stuck up there so i decided to not go wow but i did and total aside here i did however purchase my ticket for genesis in december and my airfare was dirt cheap really oh that's good what he's at the scottish right next friday that's the show you're probably talking about exactly totally don't remember that Back to uh, back to New Blood. So, if we want to get into this, and so so Ken, right out of the gate, you want to poo poo on the first track, the rhythm of the heat. 
would you like me to give my notes or would you like to go in and start the poo-pooing? <laughs> How about you give your notes? Generally speaking, you know, the general structure of the song in the front, it's very similar. There's not a whole lot of, of difference there. I think the vocal delivery is a bit more restrained maybe than the original, which is, is, is interesting. After the, the last, the rhythm has my soul, where he really holds that out. It, here's where I find the whole thing to be interesting. And this may very well be what you hate, Ken, because in the original version, after that, the rhythm has my soul and he holds it out. It goes into this just orgasm of percussion. And here there isn't an orgasm of percussion. It, it's a, it's an entirely different, you know, sort of interpretation of that with the different strings doing all these different interesting things. It doesn't hit me quite as strong as the original, but I am fascinated by the contrast to the original with, with the ending of this song. Sorry, I was totally distracted by looking at tickets at the Scottish right <laughs> Friday night. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to admit it. Go for me. You're struck by the the contrast of the ending of the rhythm of the heat. Yeah, from the from the original recording. In in, in what way? The way I just described. Sorry, so, <laughs> I, like I said. So in in the original, the ending is this just orgasm of percussion. Right. And obviously, you can't do that here. So it's it's entirely. It's an entirely different interpretation with regards to all of the various strings doing all these weird and wonderful little things. It, it doesn't, I don't find it nearly as powerful, but I do find myself fascinated by this particular interpretation because I'm always thinking of, well, it's not like the original, but it's something. Yeah. I, okay. Uh, that, that makes sense. Like to me, it made sense to me that, okay, you're not going to do all this, you know, I mean, they could have, right? They could have done really cool percussion things in an orchestral sense. They could but have. They went, to me, they went like very like uh, romantic, romanticism, yeah. orchestral, Wagner, John Williams, whatever, which I, which I found to be like the appropriate orchestral interpretation of all of that. So I guess I didn't find it as contrasting as what, as what you described, I guess, which is also probably what threw me. I mean, it's cool. And like, this is one of the ones I really like on this collection. It's like one of the ones that I felt like it didn't really change the dynamics of the song, but it changes the way you experience the dynamics, right? Interesting. Yeah. See, for me, the original recorded version, that percussion part at the end is such a rush and it, it just really gets me going. I, I just, I view it as this constant build, whereas this is more just constant yeah fair completely fair yeah okay your um analysis is true and and very grown up Uh, i'm i'm regressing here but when i listen to (laughs) the rhythm of the heat i am taken back to the james bond theme and the gun barrel sequence that opens up every Uh james bond movie French horns, when they're majestic i love french horns can also be solemn which i love there is something about this angle on the French horn that makes it a little campy for me. Just, just 
it's an incredibly professional, beautiful orchestra. I get that. But for me, the buttons that it pushes take me back to the 70s. And there are even some spots with the woodwinds, with the clarinets in there, where it's just a little wonky, where it sounds like movie theme music for me. And it's yeah. it's really the only criticism I have of the orchestration in this entire package. Fair enough. I, I can't argue with you. The second song on this record, Downside Up, is, gosh, what? It, it was from that OVO or OVO. I still don't know how to pronounce it. It was a song that, since I had never heard that particular record, I didn't know before I got this CD. And this song, I find because I have no preconceived notions of it, I find it to be absolutely charming and delightful. And over time, I have really come to appreciate Melanie Gabriel's voice. And I almost wish that she had sung Don't Give Up and not on a broom. But that's a whole different story altogether. Same, same, and same. Oh, I like Anna. I, I'm in the same boat with you with this song and I find this track to be sublime. It was a song I never knew, but it's it really is one of the highlights of this record. Like I I'm sort of naturally gravitated towards the rhythm of the heat in San Jacinto, which sandwiched this. Mm. But over time I find myself enjoying downside up more than the other two. I, wow. I agree. And I wish I could I could place Melanie Gabriel's voice I just can't figure out where it's somewhere between like Enya and like, I don't know, someone in the original cast of Les Mis maybe. I don't know. I just, I feel like it's, it's just perfect here. It's perfect. And I love there's, there's a bit near the end, the, the way, and I, I don't have the exact line in front of me, but there, there's a, there's a line that may be repeated where he talks about um, centripetal force and pulling me in. And I love that. I love that line. I think it's really great. And then there's this um, science there. There's the breakdown to just the piano and, and Peter's breathy voice. And it's just like, it almost makes me not want to hear what's on Ovo. Cause I don't really know that album. Yeah. I, I, I have it. I just, I still haven't listened to it. <laughs> Is that not one we're going to talk about ever? We had just sort of decided at the top of uh, at the pre-show oh, that we were not going to because it's a soundtrack. It's yeah. a soundtrack. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. There's there's Birdie, Passion, Ovo, and I forget what the fourth one is. Got it. Okay. My bad. Sorry. Yeah. So so we're not but, opposed to the soundtracks, but but we we're happy to leave them up to our our listeners. Uh, yeah. It, exactly. Uh, you know at. It, it, we had sort of saved them to collect them up at the end, but here I am at the end and I just, I'm not motivated enough to go back to them. <laughs> you could, you could just be distracted with cream Queensryche looming on the horizon. I could very much be distracted by Queensryche, but I would much rather talk about the gateway live albums than any of the Peter Gabriel soundtrack. Albums. Yeah. I, I think that's reasonable. So everyone agrees downside up a big winner. We like it. Big winner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So kudos and congratulations to, to Melanie Gabriel for winning our hearts, which takes us into the second of the big two from security. And that would be San Jacinto. The, the piano line that, that starts this, 
this version is just absolutely delightful. And as the rest of the orchestra kind of, you know, comes in, it, I, I think it's extremely well constructed. And it could just be because I am just so fundamentally in love with this song. I, I think the vocal treatment in the first verse is, you know, extremely grabbing. Mm-hmm. And I think the, this version, it's much more intimate than the, the security version. Couldn't say that for the entire album. I find the words inescapable, whereas in the original versions, the words yes. are, are a choice that yeah. we make. It's a choose your own adventure. You can either go with the, <laughs> the music or the meaning in the original Peter Gabriel creations. And now he makes the words the focal point. That is, that's a brilliant observation, Kenneth. And that's exactly what, what is going on here. You're right, because it, you, you, can't, you can't interpret these incorrectly. They are what they are. They're right in your face. Yeah. And it's, it's extremely well done. Which kind of ruins, you know, I always, for my whole life, I thought he said, hold the light <laughs> because of his, of his mm-hmm. live his performance. Mirror. Right. And you, like you said, Ken, you can't escape the fact that he's saying, hold the line. No matter how much I want to make it different, I cannot. <laughs> but I think because of that, it, it makes this song so much more powerful than, than perhaps pre- previously. I think when we talked about this album and this song on its original album, I made sort of a smarky, offhanded comment. Like, I couldn't imagine anyone covering this. And then we proceeded to find about seven covers that were just phenomenal <laughs> and think I've come around to the opposite of, I don't really know how you can't do this song just amazingly well. Which takes us into Intruder. Now, this, we've made comments throughout the Peter Gabriel segment that, you know, Peter does things that are not quote unquote usual in rock music, prog, or otherwise. And Peter Gabriel three being a a wonderful example of that. So it's always interesting, right? To your point, Paul, from the previous song, how other people, or in this case, Peter himself, are going to interpret that. And you know, at least while it's very percussive, I think there's much less noise noises perhaps is maybe a better way on security and the other records than there is on three so so melt has you know this very peculiar aspect to it and intruder perhaps the most peculiar of them all i so this was always one of those things you're like how is this gonna go i personally think that this interpretation of intruder is just sublime For much the same reason, right? It, it it's much more intimate in the same way that we were talking about previously with San Jacinto. But in the case of Intruder, that just makes it all the more creepy. And the way that they're able to build and maintain that tension with an orchestra, as opposed to all the the creaky noises and the the wonky piano and everything else I think is, is really quite remarkable. And I just find it to be wonderful. I think maybe at first on first listen, I was disappointed 
that he sort of took that rhythm and decided to go with sort of like a, you know, R2D2 going through Tatooine approach <laughs> with the, the orchestration. But when he starts singing, it, it's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in trouble. <laughs> Seriously. And he sings uh, Slipping the Clippers. Oh, my God. It's really, yeah. It the Again, you know, to your point with San Jacinto, uh, Ken, you can't escape the lyrics and you can't escape the vocal delivery on this, which mm-hmm. is really the song. Yeah, the song stands on its own. In, in previous episodes, we invested time into the gated drum sound, and it's nice to know that this song has a life of its own beyond the famous gated drum sound. And, and clearly it does. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about that vocal delivery and everything else, you know, say what you want to, you know, Peter, and, and this makes perfect sense, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, but but Peter very clearly understands, you know, what his songs are about and, and what drives, what's the heart of this song. You know, I don't know if we should be disturbed that he can focus that so so adroitly, but it's like, wow. So as Simon mentioned in the uh, Lessons Learned episode that, yeah. that you guys did was that I, he said something to the effect of it, that this record illustrated Peter Gabriel's restlessness with, of creativity, right? Um, and his, his willingness and, and restlessness to do more and to explore more. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I took from that. Great. This is such a, ter- the last two tracks, is such an excellent example to just what you, you mentioned, Joe, like as, as amazing as it's delivered in its previous versions, that he can go back and revisit it and make it even like more creepy and more intense. That, that restlessness, like I heard he's going to have a new solo album in the next like 10 years. So like, I hope that that restlessness carries over to, to that because it's amazing to me, like how, what he can do with, with the same material from years ago. We move on then to Wallflower. So when, when we did, when we did security, Wallflower was a late bloomer for me. It was a song that I had never really considered in earnest until we were, I was preparing for that particular episode. And all of a sudden it hit me like, what is it? A two ton heavy thing? Is that the, uh, the quote? Nice. <laughs> it, uh, it hit me like a two ton heavy thing that, you know, this song was phenomenal. And here on this record, this is the first time that I'm like, this doesn't really measure up. This maybe wasn't the best choice. It tries to be too plaintive and it just doesn't work here. Like it, do you, do you think it's just the obvious interpretation of the orchestral version of this song? It, it may very well be. I, there's something about the original that I think takes the message and sort of amps it up, where here I think it just takes the message and just delivers it. The The only highlight that I, I have here really is that, you know, here again, Melanie shows up and I love what Melanie does. Yeah. But the, the rest of the song for me just doesn't really, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm like, I don't really care. And I love the original version. So this middle section 
I, I may continue this streak, but five, six, seven, and eight are just phoned in. Yep, to, to me. I'll take I'll take one exception to that that we'll get to shortly. But okay. generally speaking, I I I feel what you're saying here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm speechless when I listen to this. The the, the entire chorus. Uh, looking really? at the lyrics, it goes twice. It's just perfect. I need nothing more. Uh, no additional orchestration. No amount of instrumentation. I, I just 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 hearing. Peter and and I guess you did the reading. It, it, it's Melanie here on the harmony. Yes, it is credited as Melanie. I mean, the words speak for themselves. As soon as he hits, you have gambled with your own life, and then he's got me, and he keeps me going. You face the night alone, while the builders of the cages sleep with bullets, bars, and stone. They do not see the road to freedom that you build with flesh. And bone. I mean, yeah, it's 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 exceptional. I mean, I love the song. I just, I, I for whatever reason, I don't connect with this version, and I, I don't, I don't know what exactly that is, but oh, I'm glad that you do. That's wonderful. I miss Larry Fast and half of this record, to be honest. <laughs> but it's a new era. It's a new time. It's new blood. Just we we appreciate it for what it is. Next, we go into one of the biggies in your eyes. I actually find i kind of enjoy this and and the reason is i think that opening riff is killer i i like the way that's orchestrated and it makes it this because this is one of those songs right that in some ways the original studio you know recording you couldn't get away from when we were growing up it was everywhere on the radio you know peter sort of reinterpreted this a little bit for the live performances and it that version you've almost heard more and this obviously is is a little bit more closely related to to the, i think the the live version than the studio version but it 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 takes something that was to me very familiar and not that interesting um not that it's not a great Song. I just never really cared for the live version as much as the studio myself. And, and it, it makes it, you know, a, a little bit more dramatic. So you got that opening riff, which is killer. The way it breaks down for the first verse, it's like this big moment of drama. Then you go back to that killer riff for the bridge. Uh, of, of this middle section, I think this is the one that captures my attention the most. Yes, Paul. I re I remember exactly where I was on my ride to work the first time I heard this, really? and my reaction was like, "Oh Jesus!" <laughs> and the only question I had in my mind was how long I was going to listen to it before I hit the skip button. And I felt <laughs> I felt compelled to listen to the whole thing at least one time. I I, I just you know, and it's. It's it's a problem, right? Because this is arguably his most recognizable song, his biggest hit, and just that opening guitar riff that they just arranged in the cheesy strings with ugh, it sucks. But I, I, I just the song this does nothing for me. I just like just ugh. I suppose if I wanted to be critical and to take into account what you're telling me, Paul, this is Perhaps the whitest version of In Your Eyes you could possibly have. <laughs> because all of the world music is stripped away, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I, I mean we don't have uh, Yusef Nador. We, we, we don't have the percussion. We, we don't have uh, the parade of 12 band members walking in a circle around the stage. All we have is, yeah, strings and uh, very well-pronounced uh, consonants. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And so that leads us into Mercy Street. I remember when we did the the episode on So, I think we spent a lot of time talking about Mercy Street and the meaning behind Mercy Street. I think for for me, you know, again, if we're in this quote-unquote middle section where everything is phoned in, if you will, if we're going to follow Paul's assertion, this is a much more subtle rendition of the song than what we get on so and as such i find it to convey a significantly smaller amount of urgency Hmm. than is communicated in the original and i'm not saying that technically she's not good but i'm going to say that i do not care for anna brune singing this song and i don't know if it's because She's not Kate Bush, and I want to hear Kate Bush. I just, I, I think her performance really, for me, really limits this. And she performs on the live record, and it's not any better there. And that's nothing against her, because there are other parts that she sings that I, I think are, you know, perfectly enjoyable. Her singing, you know, the, the co-lead with this just does not work for me personally i do want to compliment peter's voice i mean particularly san jacinto most of the album it's incredible and yeah and i agree mercy street we're getting that honest peter grit that we crave and although the rules of the game have changed with the duet our co-lead as you say I still get the vibe of the song. He still has it, and he still delivers it so well. I, I, I think that's an excellent point, Ken. I mean, just generally across the board, I think, you know, Peter's vocal delivery is exceptional. And as, you know, as we've gone through the Peter Gabriel catalog, I've made comment many times on, you know, Peter's sort of vocal prowess. And you can tell that this is an older Peter Gabriel here, but I think he's still able to do the things that he needs to do. And he adapts his delivery in ways that he needs to as well, because there are certain things that he can't do anymore. But I, I agree. I think overall, vocally, this is this album is, is really phenomenal. You know, I think we said long ago, Peter Gabriel was a screamer that learned how to sing. And and he does sound really great on on this record. I, you know, to me, this song is just again like I, I I never didn't like this song, but when we went through so, I had a pretty significant sort of awakening to the powerfulness of of Mercy Street. Mm-hmm. This version just falls way short for me. And and you know, to your point, Joe, I don't know that I don't know that Anna Brune's performance is bad. I just really like the way Melanie Gabriel sounds on this record, and I. I'd prefer to hear hear her on this, but I think Anna Brune does and, it. And, and I was I was busting on Anna Brune because I think my my beef with Anna Brune is on "Don't Give Up, Not Mercy Street." So okay. my bad. Fair, fair enough, but and, may, and so maybe all of that's misplaced. 
bottom line for me is that psh, this this just doesn't do it for me. It doesn't elevate the song, and especially in my recent reawakening to the original. What I would like to ask you guys, if you are at the production helm of an orchestrational interpretation of Peter Gabriel music and you come upon Mercy Street, what choices do you make specifically around the triangle? Because the triangle is an integral part of the original and do you keep it or do you say, you know what? We're going to do an orchestral version without it. What would you do? You have to find ways to augment it or change it up a little bit, but it has to be there. Why do you ask, Kenny? Kenny G? I'm I'm neutral, but why do you ask? Because I think (laughs) when this started, when I listened to it, I think I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to hear how can they reinterpret that part of this song differently. So so you wanted them to orchestrate the triangle part. Somehow. And and <laughs> and perhaps and 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 maybe not the the part, but to convey that sense of motion, can yeah. convey that sense of percussiveness differently. And I felt like as soon as the triangle came in, I was like, nah, this this is just the this is just the the or- orchestral track, the orchestral track of the original song that we never heard, they muted it all up. Just do you yeah. do you think it's because the the triangle belongs more in the orchestral milieu and that the contrast then is much less striking in this version than the original? I don't know that I've given it that much thought before, but that could be exactly it. That yeah. could be exactly it. Like here it sounds expected. Whereas in the original, it's quite unexpected. Yeah, I, I, and I think it goes back to may, maybe it's similar to the rhythm of the heat, right? All of that percussion at the end of the of the song, where they reimagine that percussion in strings, right? And and here, there's no reimagination of the triangle. It's let's just put it right out in front, just like it is in the original. And listen, I'm very conscious of the fact that. <laughs> I am being way too critical with this comment, <laughs> but I'm just saying. Well, that is what we do here on the Palaver, Paul. So it's welcomed and encouraged. <laughs> now, apparently, when we moved to Red Rain, I uh, thought that I was aligned with you. But according to my notes, I'm not at all. Uh, according to my notes, I find it absolutely delightful. <laughs> <laughs> and everything about this is great. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so so this is this is why you write stuff down, right? So you can sort of remind yourself of what you what you want. Um so I I make some comment about the low strings in the verse with the high strings swirling above being wonderful and the transition um from the chorus back to the verse is great apparently. So there you go, Paul. I disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> there you go. It, this simply goes back to, you know, Joe, I think when Us and Them, the, the uh, or symphonic Pink Floyd mm-hmm. came out, I think you burned me a cassette of this and mailed it to me. That's so good. It's stupid good. It, it's stupid good. And it is truly songs that have been reimagined for the orchestra. I, I have specific memories 
of where I was exactly on Route 202 North driving to Chesterbrook, Pennsylvania, listening to that tape that you sent to me. And, and I think, um, maybe unfortunately, that is the bar that is in my mind every time I listen to any sort of orchestral. And like when I, when I hear, you know, something like In Your Eyes and Red Rain, um, it, it, it just falls so short of that, of that bar. I mean, that's a really high bar. I've never come across anything like that. It really is. You're right. I certainly don't believe that Detroit Rock City is going to any get anywhere near <laughs> that bar. But but you're right. I it's it's a high bar. Ken, have you ever heard that? Us and them? Symphonic music of Pink Floyd? I'm just begging you to allow me to speak of Red Rain because I do <laughs> <laughs> I'm I've I've for a week I've been juiced up to talk about Red Rain and you guys oh. are wandering off into Pink Floyd tangents. <laughs> Goodness gracious! Our bad, Ken. What do you think about Red Rain in this version? I do not currently have a recollection of orchestral Pink Floyd, um, <laughs> but believe me, Red Rain has become the gold standard for the C major to D major to E minor progression, which is, I don't know, it's in The Edge of 17 by Stevie Nicks. It's, it's, it's probably in 10 <laughs> different Iron Maiden songs. It's probably in, 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 I think, isn't it in Wasted by Def Leppard that we used to play? And, and, and so many um, songs just do that climb. Um, it's just the nature of the minor scale where you get this huge major chord leading to a huge major chord getting you to the root of the song. And this climb keeps happening in the chorus of, of Red Rain. You get the sustained C chord to the sustained D chord, then back to the C, then back to the D, then back to the C. And finally you get to that E and you fucking explode, right? And whenever I hear this, this well-used real estate of a progression... I, I asked myself, is it as good as Red Rain? And, and very few in the business match the way that Peter just decided to use that. Um, it, it, it's so simple. It's so beautiful. And I just explode, whether it's the original So version or a live version or the or orchestral version. And particularly in the or orchestral version, I think he really nailed it. Well, I mean, John Metcalf nailed it. This New Zealander who collaborated with all, uh, Peter and all these arrangements for this particular gig, they they just they just hit the ground running. It's a very mild sounding album, almost adult oriented radio type album. But this one, they they just you know applied a strong tempo, strong dynamics. They 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 hit the ground running. And I explode every time I listen to this rendition of the tune. It's fantastic. Well, that's awesome. I'm sorry that we were tangentially uh, yeah. tangenting on you there, Ken, because that was, that was great. The, 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 I think when he toured for this album, I think he may have played it live for David Letterman. And that version may be better than the album. I need to look this up to find out which 
television host mm-hmm. hosted uh, Peter. He did Red Rain live with an orchestra on Letterman. And I, I'll hedge my bets that that is even better than this just because you can see it in all its glory close up. Fascinating looking at the, the track listing for this because there are these are the, the three so tracks or there are three so tracks all in a row, um, which is kind of interesting. And then we have a break and then we go back to so. But but yeah, I, like I said, according to my notes, I, I absolutely love this too. So Glad I got that off my chest. Took me a week. <laughs> Good. Glad you did. Moving into darkness. Now, I, I've, I've always wanted, well, not always, I've wanted to talk about this particular track on this particular album ever since we did our Up episode. Because, Paul, this particular track really kind of grated on your nerves on the studio version. And obviously, in the orchestral um, environment, you there aren't the the tools available to get that extreme dynamic range in terms of the different sounds that are coming at you. Thankfully. And and so it it evens that (laughs) out certainly musically a little bit. And what I find interesting is that given that, that situation, Peter then uses his voice to create the dynamics in the song. And, you know, I'm I'm curious if you find it to be overall more palatable, and what your thoughts of the song are in this in this interpretation. Yes, I do find it to be more palatable. I like the song a lot more, and I think the orchestral arrangement is a much better way to convey the spirit of the song and those dynamics than those sort of industrial type sounds and the 90s production that I've come to not like so much in my old age. 100%. Like I I will take this version of darkness. <laughs> What's the expression? Seven days a week and twice on Sunday or every day of the week and twice on Sunday, whatever yep. it is. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm in. I'm okay. So are you saying that the 90s leveraged techno to muddy the waters to make them appear deep? I don't remember exactly what I said, but I don't like one of the problems that I have with 90s production in general is just the vast abuse of uh, misuse of dynamics. And I don't think it's uh, better exemplified than in the original version of Darkness from okay. Up. Okay. Yeah. I am thrilled with the version version here. Yeah. Thrilled, he says. Mm-hmm. Ken, are you thrilled with darkness? <laughs> I very much enjoy it. Not a single complaint. The, the album builds, it peaks at red rain. Uh, you know, this is the booth at Denny's after the concert. The, the, this, this whole stretch here. You know? You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Yeah. Darkness. Don't give up. Now, digging the dirt's a pleasant surprise, but, but I've already peaked by this point yeah see i'm uh i think darkness is you know just looking at my notes here and thinking about my response to this i think darkness is pretty much i'm after this i'm pretty much done 
but we'll get there. Yeah. So we can then then go into don't give up. So this is where I was. I wanted to take um, exception with with Anna Brune and her not being Kate Bush because it just it doesn't work for me musically. It's not that much different. And and no offense to Anna necessarily. I just I don't think her voice matches what I think of this song in my head. And th- and that may be more a comment on the just stellar and time-defying performance of Kate Bush in the original. I don't know. Because even I made comment on the Secret World live album. You know, Paula Cole sang that there, and, and I don't care for that version either. There, there's nothing about this track that gets me excited. It's just, it's basically a cover version of Don't Give Up, and one that I prefer less than the original, or to your point, Joe, any other live version that I've heard. Can Ken save the day? This song would fit appropriately at a memorial service. Oh. So Peter has reached, I hate to say religious proportions now, but he, he he's he, he he's maybe striving for something beyond his demographic and his, his market. His, his music is now appropriate for uh, more subtle settings. Did I push any buttons with that? <laughs> I don't think it was a ringing endorsement for this particular version. No. So (sighs) it's no, it's a fantastic. It still has its cultural implications, right? I mean, how can you not hear these words and not feel the struggle? of working individuals and, 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 and poorly paid individuals and, and those with uh, health issues and whatnot. I mean, in, in the peak where Peter breaks into the falsetto, how do you not feel that in your heart? I, I think it still works in this version. Okay. Hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I just don't think it works as well as the original. Here again, I think we have to give Peter props for going back in and not reworking deep cuts, he's going for the icons in his own catalog. Sometimes that's going to work and sometimes it's not going to work nearly as well. And I, you know, like I said, I, I just personally don't care for, for Anna on this and I don't care for her delivery so much that I can't see anything else. And that, that's me. I get it. You know, I've got my own hangups. Um, so if you were, you know, a producer in this, if you had any say whatsoever, you would have said, no, Kate, no, don't give up. So I've never heard a version of, of don't give up that I like as much of the original, regardless of who's singing it. But I'd be interested to see how Melanie could do on this. It may very well be, I'd be like, no, that wouldn't work either. There's something about the, the timbre of, of Anna's voice just kind of i don't care for it seems to be a breath control she she goes more for uh an attack yeah. but there's not a lot of sustain she she builds up the sustain in post or something it's odd i i, I would also just say that i think that you know kate bush's voice despite what we might hear or read about documentaries is highly mixed and affected on the original which i think gives it this sort of ethereal mm. presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 
I, I'm with you, Joe. I don't know that it's, you know, Anna that yeah, I think it's just the whole piece of it that it just falls a little short for me. For me, like I said, the, the back part of this album is it, it just it's sort of like there are diminishing returns for me. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fatigue going on here in the mind of Paul Zotter as he's approaching track 11 with Digging in the Dirt. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this is this is a 77 minute album. It's long. That's right? long. But and, and I wish Digging in the Dirt was track four because maybe track five, because this is what I'm looking for. Right. It is. It is a um, it's a reimagination of the song. The music, like if you just listen to the music of this alone, it would it, it's almost imperceptible that it's digging in the dirt. The way the dynamic shifts for the second verse, yeah, and the way it carries through, and 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 then it, 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 the dynamics in the chorus, and then it comes back at the end. It's really really good, and and I and I probably don't give it as many props. As I should, because on a, on on, a, on any given day, because by this time I'm pretty much done with this record. I'm just like enough. Let me just go listen to So or Us or something else. You know, for for me and and the notes I have down here is that I really do like the musical arrangement. I think musically this song is exceptional. I don't care for the the vocal arrangement, however. It kind of so it's it's a mixed huh. bag for me. Interesting. Yeah, really. You know who does a great, great version of "Digging in the Dirt"? I hope you're going to tell me, or this is going to be Martin Schnella. Oh well, there you go. And Melanie Mao. You know what? "Digging in the Dirt" is odd without percussion. Mm -hmm. It is such a groovy Tony Levin kind of a song. Mm -hmm. That if there's anything out of balance, it's just the lack of groove. You know what's amazing to me, Ken, is it's only at this moment with your comment about Tony Levin that I realized that Sledgehammer is not on this record. Oh, Peter has some quote. Um, I forget where I read that. But uh, at the time when it was coming out, he deliberately said, you know, there's no Sledgehammer on here. And I'm so happy. I'm so happy that there isn't. But it's so just kind of funny. I, I have that quote from the wikis. I really didn't want to make this new album all about the hits, Gabriel explained to Mark Blake. So there's no sledgehammer. I was unsure at first about Red Rain and doing Don't Give Up Without Kate, but then it felt like it would fit. In the end, it worked. I would suggest it could've, mm -hmm. they could have done without it. I suggest the same. You suggest scratching, digging in the dirt? No, 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 no. Digging in the dirt, please keep. I would get rid of Don't Give Up, give up. probably In Your Eyes. And what is it, 77 minutes? 77 minutes. All right, so that's 70. That is basically 63. Yeah, I would say Mercy Street and Red Rain. Get rid of both of those. Oh, you're no. kidding. Mercy See, I would, I would get rid of... I would get rid of I'll go with you on In Your Eyes. I'm okay with that. Take out Don't Give Up, Leave Digging in the Dirt, and cut off the last three. A quiet moment. Isn't that just like four minutes of nothing? It is. Mostly. 
there's like some strange like symbol reverb or something. Yeah. Like so we'll we'll get to that. Sorry. Okay. But yeah, I mean, if if we're going if we're going to salvage this one, I'm like I said, I that's what I would do. I would cut it off after digging in the dirt. Okay, I I'd, I'd go with that. Because like I said, as well, well as in your eyes. Yeah, as long as I mean, digging in the dirt isn't my favorite, but I I, I dig it enough. And and Ken, you're right. Like it, it, I think you'd like it better if it was track four. Seriously, I I might. But but Ken, you're right. I mean, one of the things that is sort of lacking overall here is Tony Levin, right? And they've done a really good job of making us forget about Tony Levin up until now. You know, digging in the dirt, and perhaps Sledgehammer would have even been more so. We're that, like 66 minutes in. We need some Tony yeah. Levin. We We're need like, we need a little Tony come Levin. Come on, man. Just some recorders, maybe. You know. <laughs> All right. Well. I mean, but if I'm a wedding planner or if I'm the person that makes video montages for weddings and memorial services, I want my goddamn in your eyes and I want uh, my don't give up. And there is a place in this world for certain uh, gorgeous tracks and no one cares what three guys in a palaver have to say. I don't know. And a wheel of cheese, too. <laughs> <laughs> I and 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 I think you know, Ken, that is an absolutely valid point. But it is our podcast, and we are allowed to have our opinions, and so we shall have them. Okay. Which, um, I, I don't remember the nest that sailed this guy. Can we skip that? Well, it's it's funny because my my note there says pretty unremarkable, beautiful, and soothing. But that's it. There, yeah. Okay. It, it, yeah. It it actually was an original track that was, uh, I guess it was previously unreleased. It said I don't know what it was originally for, but there's. I'm sorry. The nest that sailed the sky was um, Ovo. So again, I, I don't know soundtrack. what it is. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a soundtrack. It's beautiful. If I had 77 minutes of that, I would listen to it every night before I, as I'm laying in bed going to sleep. Um. Beautiful. Nothing more. And and so a quiet moment, right? If you look at the wikis, it talks about um, the the quiet moments. Um, the album. In, I'll read this from the wikis. The album features a new song, "A Quiet Moment," which originated in his desire to separate Salisbury Hill, remade due to huge demand from the rest of the album. Originally, three minutes of silence were to separate Salisbury Hill, but it was thought this would confuse people. And Gabriel decided that a quiet moment would work better. Now, it was funny when I was listening to this in the car on, on the way down, right? A quiet moment sounds literally like nothing. What are you laughing about? I'm, I'm laughing at like three minutes of silence would have confused, minute, confused people. But four minutes and 48 seconds of like weird reverb, no problem. So, <laughs> exactly. So, I'm driving. And, you know, with with my van having all the road noise and everything else, it sounds like nothing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but when I you know, when I got here and quite frankly, I, I have never listened to my CD in headphones when I got, you know, when I'm, I'm not driving and I can listen in headphones, I listen to um, the streaming version. And it sounds to me like it's it's birds chirping and some sort of like wind sound. Uh, but yeah, to your point. If you want to separate it out, I get it. 
but it doesn't need to be separated out for this long because yeah. after after 70 minutes of this album i'm not that interested in seeing what's after this big blank space right and no amount right. of time is going to make salisbury hill on this record any better yeah it's just it's it's a very curious decision well said well and frankly i, I don't particularly like the piano arrangement it, it's just a very clunky delivery on piano it's just um yeah. Well said. They quantize the velocities on max, and it doesn't breathe for me. As orchestral versions of songs go, it's probably the most pedestrian one ever. Unremarkable is what I say. Yeah, Yeah. it's not great at all. And it's such a fucking awesome song. (laughs) And Ken, you you talked about the guitar part. Uh, when we did the original. At length, yes. And and like, like you said, like the clunky piano... Uh, it's just not good. And and maybe it sounds like he did this track reluctantly, perhaps, which is hard to believe at, at the the level he is at when he's putting this out there in, what, 2011 or whatever. It's just not great. Now, there is a little violin in here that really works for me. There are some positive moments skipping Agreed. Through. And there's like that super high trumpet towards the end that's really sweet as well. But... Mm. Well, I, I think it speaks to, and we again we covered this when we did when we did that original episode. You know, this is again this is one of those songs that just as a song is fundamentally stellar. So you can only fuck it yeah. up so much. <laughs> Honestly, you know there there are certain aspects of it that are just sort of naturally going to manifest. It's not great. It's just yeah. okay. I mean, I feel like such a bitch for even talking about it like this because it's like it is really well executed but it's just like nah, well whatever. It, let, let's put it this way is it, it it certainly doesn't live up to the hype of four minutes of space that is certainly for sure I, I mean there's there's nothing that would have thrown me off if this had just come right after um whatever the song was the nest that did whatever. Truth. Nest that sailed away. Yeah. I'm sorry. The nest that sailed the sky. Yeah. I mean, if, if they had gone right from the nest that that sailed the sky into Salisbury Hill, that would have been enough of a of a separation for me. Yeah. Really you was. would have been able to eject the CD four minutes and 48 seconds earlier. I would have. <laughs> uh, and it does explode, but they wait um, over four minutes to bring in the brass. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, you could have done that a little bit sooner. Yeah, they could have done something. I mean, imagine had they brought out a Spanish guitar, you know, to do the opening instead of that loud piano. And it just sounds like, I don't know if it's Peter himself playing piano, but you can just hear somebody playing octaves in the bass with their left hand. And it's like, like, okay. Like any high school piano player could do that, you know. You use this orchestra to do something a bit more musical. <sighs> Even Kenny G is frustrated, you know. And and I think <laughs> I it is. And this is one of my life songs. I told you the story. <laughs> hearing this, you know, driving down the road and and uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, this is a song that 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 floats 
with me through my life. And this was a version that I didn't need. <laughs> well, it was, it was funny. Not too long ago, I was digging through my, my phone for an old picture and I came across the surface tension reunion at Paul's gig. What was that 2013, 2014, something like that. Something like that. Wow. And, and the thing I remember about that is, is you performing Salisbury Hill with him, Ken? Yeah, and I didn't get it right, and Paul had to coach me through it, and I never, never, never lived that. I don't remember that at all, Ken. In my mind, <laughs> you sang it perfectly. I had a, I had, I had a blast. Yeah, let's not ever tarnish that memory of mine. You sang it perfectly. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. But I think in, in all of the time we've, we've talked about Peter Gabriel, whether solo or his time in Genesis, and, and correct me if I have this wrong, but I mean, it sounds like maybe this is the first time that we're, we're suggesting that maybe Peter needed to be edited a little bit. Maybe he was a little self-indulgent with, with what he was doing. And I mean, he's taken us some very interesting places and we've always sort of been very willing to go there. Am I wrong about that? This is a partnership between Peter and John Metcalf. And I'm sure as the arranger and producer, he must have had a say in here. Um, so this is just the particular co collection that these two cooked up. Um, and not only did they do the album, but they needed enough material to do the live blood. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sure they put together as much material as possible to see what worked, to see what they could get into the live show. I, I don't I don't blame yeah. them for doing this way, but maybe the two of them could have used an editor to, to, to back It's up a good line. call out, Ken, because and by 2011, right, we were. Where were we between like buying CDs and streaming music? Were we streaming already in 2011? I don't think so. I think we were still maybe I, we were still downloading singles off of iTunes and things like that and buying albums off of iTunes. Maybe then is that, is that right? Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the streaming thing wasn't as. Yeah. So as I, so, you know, like if you're creating a CD and you want to put 70, the maximum amount of minutes on it. Okay. But I think you're right, Ken, they could have easily, you know, had these, as bonus tracks or something like that, but maybe given us an album that was a little more succinct and a little bit more innovative and saved uh, some of these for the live show. Right. But, but I, you know, I think that's a very astute observation, Ken, because if you look at, you know, the expanded version of this and you look at the, the two disc live show, I mean, they did orchestrate a lot more of the catalog than just this. And, you know, for whatever, like, and if that's the case, if there was already a whole extra disc of material that was left off, I find the tracking of of this original version, again, curious. The only thing I really missed hearing, maybe, well, maybe two tracks. I, I, I would have liked to hear what they did with The Blood of Eden, and I would have liked to hear what they did with Biko. And uh, Washing of the Water? I mean, yeah, may maybe Peter just has too many goddamn good songs. Yeah, I mean, because not for nothing on the on the disc two, I guess. Signal to noise is pretty badass. Yeah, Pardon. signal to noise is a, 
just ah, that song so good. Yeah. But, so I mean, you know, maybe so we're the, just I mean, being too critical. I don't. Know. Yeah. Maybe we are. Maybe we're just a grumpy, a bunch of grumpy old guys. But and, and that could be the other thing, right? By the time I get, you know, on the done the second disc of the live. Besides the fact that Peter's introducing everyone too often. <laughs> You know, I've now listened to two entire discs without any Tony Levin, which is just, wow, it's too much. Yeah. Well, I may, you know, go give, you know, so the, the vinyl version that you uh, gifted me, Joe, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. With the, with a correct song structure. That's right. And album order. Yeah. I may just give that a spin before I go to bed tonight. Just to- <laughs> Hey, speaking of that, complete non sequitur, I received notification today that my uh, my new vinyl version of Out of the Silent Planet has oh, shipped. What? <laughs> I didn't, oh, I didn't know you got that. Oh. Yeah, I did. Oh, jelly. Do it. So, gentlemen, that kind of takes us to the end of this record. And, you know, we can have and we have had all sorts of interesting discussions about what tracks should or should not be on here. But again, you know, uh, uh, for me, I just I have always found this album to be, you know, interesting. And I wanted to talk about it. And so I appreciate you guys, you know, sort of humoring me and going along with it. Like I said, I think some of these tracks translate exceptionally well some of them translate less well but it it certainly is um something to talk about and peter gabriel's vocals if nothing else absolutely top notch so love it and as we mentioned at the top of the show i think that's going to close out the peter gabriel segment and you know, if Peter releases something in the next 10 years, we'll be sure to go back and cover it. But it's been it's it's been fascinating. And I'm so glad that we did this. And, and Ken, you know, kudos to you again. I'm not exactly sure where this episode is going to come out. Um, it'll probably come out before the end of the the fish catalog. But, you know, you were the one who put us on the path to to consider fish and Peter Gabriel in parallel. And I think it it really paid off. So thanks, man. Yeah, Kenny G. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. And uh, yeah, so until next time, gentlemen, thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.